Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 32 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. It was the middle of summer, Sunday, July 22nd, 1990. At 11.30pm, a musician, Gordon Wilson, was walking back from a late-night recording session on Holloway Road in London. He noticed the women and presumed they were just in a deep sleep. He was in a rush, and the last train was due to leave from Holloway Road Underground Station. Wilson didn't pause on his journey. It was dark and he had no reason to think he needed to. Almost a mile away, nearly eight hours later, the same muted gold Toyota Corolla was parked amongst the other cars lining the street during rush hour on Spears Road in Upper Holloway. 
People who walked by the vehicle barely paid any notice to the two motionless women sitting inside. Perhaps they were asleep, and they had a heavy weekend partying. It was Monday. Were they just sleeping it off in their car until they could drive home? Commuters were on their way to work at the surrounding factories and offices, passing by the car just the same as they had many others that morning. However, there was no movement inside the vehicle. The windows weren't even steamed up. Someone eventually got curious, stopping for longer than a second. They approached the car, knocking on the window. Neither of the passengers stirred. One of the women inside the vehicle was wearing jeans and a t-shirt. The second woman was clothed in only a bra and a pair of shorts. A leather strap was wrapped around the neck of one of the occupants of the car. The way in which they were positioned did not appear natural, not usually the way someone would sleep. One of the women's eyes were wide open and unflinching to the growing commotion outside. Joined now by a second observer, the bystanders agreed that they should contact the police. Officers arrived at the scene and pried the locked car door open with a coat hanger. The women in the car were identified as 31-year-old Elaine Forsyth and her friend 28-year-old Patricia Morrison. The home they shared on Grenville Road was less than half a mile from the location where their bodies were discovered. Elaine was positioned in the front passenger seat and Patricia in the back. The vehicle belonged to Patricia. Elaine only held a provisional driver's license. She was due to take her driving test that Monday. Two doctors examined the bodies. Both agreed that the women had been strangled with a ligature. There was evidence someone had attempted to manually strangle Elaine, who had had a hand held over her mouth. It was considered that as Elaine had no defensive injuries... She had been attacked from behind. Patricia's body had a number of bruises upon it, indicating that a struggle had taken place. There were no signs of sexual assault on either of the victim's bodies, and robbery did not appear to be a motive. Detectives theorised the murders happened elsewhere, not inside the car, and based on the condition of the bodies, the two women had been murdered roughly 36 hours before their bodies were found. Elaine Forsyth and Patricia Morrison were flatmates and friends. They were both employed as estate agents, working for different businesses in the West End of London. Elaine had worked for Debenham, Chewson and Chinooks for the past four years. Patricia also worked there for a while, 
but had recently moved on to another estate agent's nearby called Knight, Frank and Rutley. A company representative spoke about Patricia and how her colleagues had coped with the news of her death. I think people were stunned by the thought that one of their colleagues, and one who's probably quite well known throughout the firm because of the job she does, that anything like this could happen. Patricia was a very, what I would suppose, a very normal, sensible girl, very, very competent, very professional in all the work she did. She'd been working with us for only just over a year and a half, um, but she was getting on her later 20s. She was, she, she was someone who anyone would have been any too happy to employ, and a, a real good, a really able worker, and someone with a real professional outlook on everything she did. Both of the women's roles did not require them to leave the office to show clients around properties, empty or otherwise. They both had desk jobs. Elaine had changed her role in the last two years and now worked as a personal secretary. Her boss thought highly of his employee and when he found out about her death, he said, I can't think of any enemies Elaine would have had. She was very popular, very hard-working and very loyal. Before their bodies were found, Elaine and Patricia had a full weekend planned. They were seen by a neighbour sunbathing in the back garden on Saturday afternoon. Elaine was revising for her driving test on Monday. She was also seen by the next-door neighbour still in the garden at 6.30pm that evening. Patricia headed out to a Madonna concert with a friend. She left at 4pm. On Sunday, she was hoping to spend time with Elaine, with the two planning on having a barbecue in the garden of the basement flat they shared. Just three months prior to her murder, in a spur-of-the-moment decision... Patricia had moved in with her friend after a disagreement with her parents. The property was owned by Elaine and was purchased for her by her father. The two friends shared the flat with Elaine's former partner, 34-year-old accounts clerk Michael Shorey. They were no longer in a relationship and Shorey was soon to be moving out. Elaine had been with Shorey for eight years. They had spent the last few years living together. She had kept her romantic life and her family life separate, not letting even her father Joseph know that she was seeing someone. He only found out about eight weeks before she was killed. Joseph had known of Michael Shorey, but Elaine had fobbed off her father, describing Shorey as just another colleague from work. The next day, Michael Shorey went into the office and according to his boss, he collapsed in a flood of tears telling her, my girlfriend has been murdered. Patricia Morrison was engaged to be married and it was this proposal that triggered the blazing row with her parents. 
she left her home in Kent to live in London with Elaine and Michael Shorey. Patricia's parents were disappointed in her choice of partner. He was a Turkish waiter who Patricia had met whilst on holiday. She was adventurous and liked to travel. She had spent a year working in Istanbul. Ryder Sultane was never a suspect in his fiancée's murder. He was waiting tables in Turkey at the time. His boss later commented to the press that his employee was devastated at realising Patricia had been murdered. Patricia's father, Ian Morrison, spoke with a reporter for the Daily Mirror and described Patricia's personality. Our daughter was effervescent, witty and charming. It's a tragedy her life has been cut off. Ian Morrison and his wife Betty travelled to Scotland to break the news of Patricia's untimely passing to her grandparents. The murders of Elaine Forsyth and Patricia Morrison became known in the press as the case of the bodies in the car. Patricia's vehicle was still being held by forensic experts, but when it was released, police hoped to use it in a reconstruction to jog the memories of potential witnesses. They planned to park it on Spears Road, where the car had been found with the bodies of the two women inside. Two witnesses had seen the car at yet another location on Sunday, July 22nd, this time near North London Polytechnic University. Again, like many other members of the public who passed by, they thought nothing of it until they learned of the murders. Detective Superintendent Geoffrey Parrott leading the inquiry said, The people who came forward just took it as two young ladies sleeping, and unfortunately they took it no further. It's just amazing that no one gave it a second look. No driver has been seen at all, he added. It was thought that the killer was never far away, and was even observing the car from afar. Perhaps they had moved the vehicle when they grew impatient that the police had not been notified that there were two dead women in the car. A temporary hotline was set up by Elaine's father, Peter, for just 24 hours. It was separate from the police inquiry. It was open for people who may not have wanted to speak to the authorities directly. Peter Forsyth appeared on the LWT 6 o'clock live news programme to talk about his daughter and catching the person or people responsible. He told the presenter, Elaine was a lovely, independent girl. Now we have to accept we will never see her again. But we can't accept whoever did this could go free and unpunished. It's hard to talk about the horror that had struck my family and that of Mr. and Mrs. Morrison. Elaine and Patricia harmed nobody, and their deaths are cruel and pointless. 
when these evil people are trapped and caught as they will be. We won't rejoice, but we will have justice, and we believe that's what every decent person would want for us. The hotline number was then read out. Peter Forsyth said, Please help us if you can by calling me. One week would pass and the murders were still unsolved. Peter Forsyth made an appeal for a woman who called the helpline to again come forward. The female with an Irish accent said she may have seen something suspicious relating to the case while walking her dog in the area. The last place the car was left and its surrounds were scoured, including a railway embankment. Investigators thought it was possible the car keys could have been disposed of after the vehicle was moved for the final time. On August 9th, after a fingertip search, officers found a bunch of keys and some other items they believe belonged to Elaine and Patricia that had been thrown down the embankment. On the morning of July 23rd, the day the bodies of Elaine Forsyth and Patricia Morrison were found, a good friend and work colleague of Michael Shorey's was asked a strange favour. Shorey turned up at the home of Gary McRae and requested McRae look after something for him, just for safekeeping. McRae was handed a black refuse sack with something inside. He asked what it was. Shorey told him it was a piece of carpet. McRae found the exchange suspicious. When he discovered Elaine and Patricia had been murdered and their killer or killers were still at large, he did the right thing and went straight to the police station. When officers emptied the refuse sack, they unravelled the nine-foot piece of carpet which was later found to have come from the hallway of Elaine's flat. Although as highly suspicious as it was, giving a friend a length of carpet that came from the home of someone who was murdered, it did not mean Shorey was guilty. The material was analysed, although it would take some time before the results came back. When police questioned Michael Shorey about why he gave a piece of carpet to one of his friends, Shorey's initial reaction was to deny even knowing who Gary McRae was, never mind giving him a section of carpet. He soon changed his tune when he realised that the police knew he was lying. Shorey was now saying that his cat had hunted a bird and killed it on the carpet so he needed to take the material to the dry cleaners. However, in another interview, when pressed further, he scrapped his previous explanation about the cat and was claiming someone was sick on it, so he was taking it to be cleaned. When the police searched the flat, 
they found a heavy box had been placed over a stain that marked the floor. As the police were provided with several differing accounts of his whereabouts, they cast a watchful eye over Michael Shorey. Michael Llewellyn Shorey came to England with his mother Vera from Barbados in 1971. He attended school in Wilsdon, northwest London. When he finished his studies, he took a job as a kitchen porter. In 1974, Shorey met Anne Wexler. She was soon pregnant with their child. They lived in a squat in Holloway. Over time, the relationship slowly turned violent. Starting off with verbal assaults, this progressed to slaps, then physical attacks. Anne Wexler told reporter Jeff Sutton, He threw three darts at me, one stuck in my leg, one in my arm, and the other bounced off. I was absolutely terrified. Shorey used an aerial to whip Anne while she was pregnant. She was also threatened with a javelin as Shorey pinned her to the wall. She courageously got away from Shorey, returning to her home in Manchester. Anne Wexler gave birth to her daughter Kerry, a child she feared she would have miscarried if she stayed with Michael Shorey. Michael Shorey was jailed at the Old Bailey in July 1976 for causing grievous bodily harm and cruelty to a child. He was staying with a friend who had let the homeless Shorey stay with her temporarily. One night she left her daughter Denise in his care. Her mother Wendy came home to a screaming child that was obviously in pain. Michael had put the baby's feet in extremely hot or boiling water as punishment. The child needed numerous surgeries. Shorey was jailed for just three months. Denise was scarred on her feet permanently and the psychological effects were considerable. Her mother later said, She had plastic surgery and is scared to show her feet. It affected her self-confidence terribly. The incident continued to have an impact on her. The scars were a constant reminder. Michael Shorey's daughter Kerry lived with her mother in Manchester, but was still in touch with her father and would sometimes travel to London to see him. By 1990, Shorey was working as an accounts clerk for an advertising agency in West London. Ten days before the murders of Shorey's former girlfriend Elaine Forsyth and her friend Patricia Morrison, Michael Shorey had started a relationship with someone else. Shorey had had his eye on another woman. They had met in a bar at Alexandra Park. 
A friend later claimed that this was Shora's usual bar for picking up women. His behaviour did not change even when he was with Elaine. His friends described Shory as charming but arrogant. There was a gig on that night, and it turned out that the teenage son of the woman Shory wanted to see was playing in the band. Maybe he recognised her from television. She had been a cast member of a wildly successful television show just a couple of years earlier. Sandy Ratcliffe was a celebrity and led what the tabloids saw as a salacious life. The actress had been amongst the cast of soap opera EastEnders. From 1985 to 1989, she played calf owner Sue Osman. She had other acting roles, but her career had waned in recent years due to her drug use. Sandy Ratcliffe found out about the murders of Elaine and Patricia on the day their bodies were found. Michael Shorey rang her that evening, saying, It's Elaine. It's Elaine. Ratcliffe was aware of Elaine's existence, but believed that her new boyfriend's relationship with her was now platonic. Sandy Ratcliffe rushed to see Shorey. He was at a friend's house. He wanted to call the police and let them know he was Elaine's ex-partner. After supposedly being on hold for about ten minutes, he gave up and put down the receiver. Michael Shorey voluntarily went to the police station with his solicitor. He made a witness statement saying that both Lane and Patricia left the flat that Saturday afternoon. He said that he left shortly after 9pm that day to go to Sandy Ratcliffe's. His new partner claimed that Shorey was with her that weekend. So, as he had an alibi, he said it was impossible for him to have committed the murders. However, the timeline of what exactly they were doing during the period in which Elaine and Patricia were killed kept changing. Although police did not have enough to charge Shorey, along with Sandy Ratcliffe, the pair were asked to stay away from each other and their contact be kept to a minimum. Their discussions were to be logged by Ratcliffe and relayed to detectives. She was a common feature in the tabloids. In August, Sandy Ratcliffe spoke exclusively to the Sunday Mirror. The front page read, Murders wrecked my love life. Sandy Ratcliffe said that her relationship with Michael Shorey was serious. He had told her, You're very special. We should get married. She reportedly said, Michael was my first lover in three and a half years. We were like teenagers. But this tragedy has really ruined our romance. In the two-page story, Shorey and Ratcliffe's love lives were discussed and what she said they were up to on the night of the murders at her home in Stoke Newington, North London. 
a court order was put in place to stop the press publishing Michael Shorey's picture while the investigation was ongoing. Sandy Ratcliffe was advised not to participate in any more news stories so as to not jeopardise the murder inquiry. She was well known in Britain. The newspapers would have been particularly interested in a double murder where a celebrity had the inside scoop. Even though they were told not to meet, Anne Ratcliffe should detail her phone conversations she had with Shorey. Unbeknownst to police, she broke the rules. On August 3rd, Ratcliffe left her home to visit Michael Shorey in Lewisham, where he was staying with his aunt. Ten days after the murders of Elaine Forsyth and Patricia Morrison, Michael Shorey was arrested. They found him at the home of one of Elaine's friends, a woman called Kathy. Kathy later said that uninvited Michael Shorey turned up at her home drunk. She told him he could stay and sleep it off. He then proceeded to remove his clothes and tried to get into bed with her. He tried to grope her, and she pushed him away. It had not been long since her friend was murdered. Shorey was taken to Highbury Vale Police Station and held overnight. He was released the next day on bail. Investigators did not have quite enough substantial evidence to charge Shorey. He was insistent he had an alibi, even if his and Sandy Ratcliffe's accounts were inconsistent, which they gave over the course of numerous interviews. Detective Superintendent Jeffrey Parrott said, A man has been released without charge, but he may be returning. took the police six weeks to build their case, and by September 4th there was finally enough proof to charge Michael Shorey with the murders of Elaine Forsyth and Patricia Morrison. It was theorised that as the relationship between Elaine and Shorey was coming to an end, perhaps that night she learned that her boyfriend was in a new relationship with Sandy Ratcliffe. They had an argument, and Shorey killed her. Patricia later returned from the Madonna concert. After discovering Elaine's body, or realising what Shorey had done, before she could raise the alarm, he strangled her too. The murder weapons were a leather handbag strap and a teal rope-like curtain tie. The tie was discarded on the floor of the flat. The distribution of blood found in the home and in the car suggested that death had occurred in the flat and that the bodies had been transferred to the car later. Detectives believe Shorey took the keys for Patricia's gold Toyota Corolla and posed the bodies of the women as if they were still alive. He parked the vehicle in different places, finally settling on a spot at Spears Road.
A court order had been put in place preventing newspapers from publishing Michael Shorey's photograph. It was now lifted when Shorey appeared in a five-minute court hearing to face charges on September 5th, 1990. Shorey was granted legal aid and no application for bail was made. While he was in prison awaiting trial, the public gaze was on Sandy Ratcliffe. Celebrating her birthday in October, she got a card from Shorey. Their relationship while he was in prison was now already much longer than it was on the outside. Sandy Ratcliffe told a correspondent for the Sunday Mirror, Michael would have been here tonight. It's painful without him. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Michael Shorey's trial for the murders of Elaine Forsyth and Patricia Morrison was held at the Old Bailey in the summer of 1991. In his opening statement, John Nutting QC said, The Crown's case is that Shorey murdered Elaine, possibly the result of a quarrel about their relationship, and later killed Patricia on her return to the flat, either because she had discovered what had happened or to prevent her from doing so. He and Elaine had been living together for several years, but their relationship had cooled, and he was due to move out of the flat the previous weekend. Court documents describe an association between Shorey and Elaine's flatmate Patricia Morrison. However, the details of what exactly was meant by this, either a close friend or something more, was not made clear. Public accounts make no mention of any relationship between the two. Before Michael Shorey was due to move out of the property, he had met and began a relationship with Sandy Ratcliffe. The prosecutor listed the evidence against the defendant. A pair of Michael Shorey's shoes were found to have blood belonging to the victims on the back of the heels. The staining was consistent with someone who had lifted the bodies by putting them over their shoulder. Blood would have hit the heel as he manoeuvred the bodies and carried them onto the street before placing them in the car. The bloody length of carpet from the hallway of the flat that Shorey gave to Gary McRae was a vital piece of evidence. McRae would be one of the key witnesses at the trial. Michael Shorey again denied even knowing McRae, but the carpet was proven to have come from the hallway. Like Shorey's trainers, it was stained with blood and saliva from the two victims. The hall where the carpet was removed revealed specks of blood on the skirting board, on and around where the carpet would have been. The blood staining on the carpet given to McRae seemed to coincide with markings on the floor of the flat where a box had been placed to conceal what was beneath it. A witness who was travelling through Holloway the morning Elaine and Patricia's bodies were found saw the gold Toyota being driven slowly yet erratically sometime around 7.30am. He saw two females inside. The witness described a black male with long permed hair driving the vehicle. He made the assumption that all three people in the car were intoxicated with either alcohol or drugs. The provisional driving licence belonging to Shorey was found in the flat, but he had never taken his driving test. His appearance fit the description that the witness gave, however when brought to the police station the witness had failed to pick Shorey out of a lineup. While on remand, Michael Shorey had shared a cell with an inmate in Brixton Prison. 
the cellmate who was now providing testimony as a prosecution witness was named only as Mr. X. He said Shorey had confessed to the murders, saying, They will never prove it. Mr. X, who had sought advice from a solicitor, had been put in touch with the police. Over an extended period of some months, he had a continuing series of conversations with Shorey. He'd kept a record of them in writing. Shorey admitted in these conversations that he could drive, although he had never passed his test. Shorey also confessed to his cellmate that he, quote, nearly shit himself when he discovered that the police had found out about the piece of carpet he had given to Gary McRae. For presenting evidence, Mr. X's prison term was significantly reduced. He had previously been given 10 years for possession of cocaine with intent to supply. The decade was reduced to less than half of the original sentence, just four and a half years. Mr. X had spent five months in the same cell as Shorey. The witness for the prosecution confidently told the court, I know he is the killer. It's not a question of if he is the murderer. I know he is. Tina, a neighbour on Grenville Road, said she had heard a commotion at Elaine's flat at about 11.30pm on Saturday, July 21st, 1990. I turned the TV down. I heard two screams, she told the court. The first was a full scream. The other was broken, like a half scream. I didn't hear any more. I told my boyfriend to turn the television up, and we made tea. Tina heard a second noise about 4am. It sounded like the heater being knocked on the hallway of Elaine's flat. In a hushed voice, Tina admitted to the court, I did nothing. Police had employed an actress to mimic the screams Tina heard that night. They listened from Tina's home to see if the noises she heard were likely to have come from Elaine's flat. Michael Shorey chose not to give testimony to the court. Gordon Wilson, a musician, was summoned to the stand called by Michael Shorey's defence counsel. When he had first seen the car on Sunday, July 22nd, he did not notice anything was wrong. He came forward the next day to tell police what he saw when Wilson realised the bodies in the car deaths related to the parked vehicle he had seen the night before. Wilson told the court that he noticed the beige or yellow car on his way home. The exact colour of the car is up for debate. It is interpreted as beige by some and gold by others. Both seem to be correct. 
is a very pale, almost muted gold colour. Wilson saw the vehicle on Sunday night on Holloway Road, hours before police were informed. He said, As I walked past, I noticed there were two girls inside. At the time, I thought they were asleep. I presume they must have been waiting for somebody. I thought they were both well asleep, but they were not in normal sleeping positions. When the car was finally discovered the next morning on Monday, July 23rd, it had been moved just under a mile away. It was argued by the prosecution that both of the victims had been murdered between the late hours of Saturday, July 21st and the early morning of Sunday, July 22nd. Michael Shorey claimed to have been with his new partner Sandy Ratcliffe that weekend. According to Shorey's new partner, she corroborated his story. Sandy Ratcliffe took to the stand and told the court of her new relationship and how it had progressed quickly. She described it as a, quote, heat wave romance. Ratcliffe was infatuated with Shorey. She claimed that during the late evening and early morning when Patricia and Elaine were killed, she was with her new partner. In fact, they were both at her home while her 16-year-old son was away for the evening. She said Shorey brought over some wine and soul food. Radcliffe said they shared the wine, but she only picked at the food because she had a toothache. She spent the rest of the evening in bed and only got up in the night to go to the kitchen to get a cup of tea because of the pain she was in. She claimed the only time Michael Shorey left her home was for about half an hour the next morning to walk her dog. She claimed they remained together until Monday morning when the women were discovered in the car. Ratcliffe admitted that after Elaine and Patricia's bodies were found, it played on her mind. She consciously checked Shorey's body for any signs of cuts and bruises when he undressed in front of her at her house a few days after the murders. She thought he was clear. No marks were evident. She said, I made a point of it because I was scared. Ratcliffe described how Shorey appeared when she first saw him after finding out about the murders. Michael appeared very upset to me, she said. I didn't feel he had anything to do with it. The witness admitted visiting Shorey when she had been told not to in early August. She said she was influenced by taking a lot of sleeping pills and drinking brandy. Prosecuting John Nutting QC cross-examined Ratcliffe. She admitted that she was muddled about her evidence. She also divulged that when visiting Shorey, she told her son to call the police if she did not come home. 
John Nutting QC told the court of Sandy Ratcliffe's past, saying that she had served time in prison for conspiracy to supply cannabis. She also didn't deny that she smoked the drug with her teenage son. The prosecution were trying to convince the jury Sandy Ratcliffe was an unreliable witness. Nutting also pointed out in two of her six interviews with police regarding her whereabouts and that of her new partner, she gave differing accounts of when exactly Shory arrived at her home. These times were five hours apart. Richard Ferguson QC defending Michael Shorey felt the in-depth cross-examination of Sandy Ratcliffe was too much. He told the jury that Ratcliffe had been destroyed by the intense cross-examination, but her evidence was not. He said, She may have been a bad mother and an opportunist, a convicted criminal or a worthless person, but she is not on trial. Pitiable she may be or contemptible, but what matters is whether she is telling the truth. The jury of eight women and four men failed to reach a verdict for each charge on the first day of deliberations. They were sent to a hotel for the night. The next day, they returned to the court. In total, they had spent seven hours and 29 minutes discussing the case. Jurors were unanimous on each count. Guilty. During the trial, the jury discovered that Michael Shorey had served time in prison for grievous bodily harm. However, they were unaware of the circumstances. Detective Superintendent Jeffrey Parrott told the court of Shorey's crimes against the child of an ex-partner committed 15 years earlier. Michael Shorey was sentenced on July 3rd, 1991. The judge, Mr Justice Wright, addressed Shorey who had been convicted of two counts of murder. Shorey never offered any reasons for his actions, insisting he was innocent. The judge said, It must be a matter of speculation as to what led you to commit these two appalling crimes. As he continued, Shorey interrupted, shouting, I didn't kill anyone. Another voice came from an older woman in the public gallery. She was assumed to be Michael Shorey's mother. She called to him, Don't cry, Michael. Keep your chin up. Shorey sobbed in the dock as he was handed two life sentences to be served concurrently. He had to be dragged from the court by security guards to begin his sentence.
the families of Elaine Forsyth and Patricia Morrison watched from the public gallery as the verdicts were announced. Both fathers say now the ordeal of the trial is over, the families can begin to pick up the pieces of their lives, shattered last July when the bodies of the two women the life strangled out of them were found propped up in a car in North London. Although Elaine's father, Peter Forsyth, said the sentence life in prison was too good for Shorey. We accept it for what it is. Under the circumstances, it's the best that we could get. But under no circumstances would I ever accept that a jail sentence is adequate for the cruel murders of my daughter and Patricia. Her father, Ian Morrison, said he was satisfied with the result, but also said it was no compensation for the loss of his daughter. Sure, his mother and sister were interviewed and were dismayed, unrelenting in their claims that he was innocent. There's not a word to describe the British justice on this case. Michael cannot drive. He can't drive to save his life. There's more than one person who killed those two girls. Detective Superintendent Geoffrey Parrott publicly voiced his frustration at Sandy Ratcliffe for providing a false alibi. Newspapers featured Ratcliffe's picture more prominently than Shorey's. In large, bold font, the July 4th edition of the Daily Mirror's front page read, Heartless Liar, with an equally large image of Sandy Ratcliffe. Superintendent Parrott told the press, We took six statements from her, and it was quite clear what she was saying could not be true and the jury didn't accept it either. We all knew she was lying. Sandy Ratcliffe avoided perjury charges. It was considered she was genuinely confused about what happened due to her drug dependency. She said she took cocaine like some people drank brandy. Heroin had been a drug she was addicted to throughout the 80s. After Elaine and Patricia were killed, Sandy Ratcliffe drank heavily. On at least one occasion throughout this time, she had sought help for her addictions. Almost two years after his convictions, in June 1993, counsel for Michael Shorey, Peter Thornton QC, argued his client's case before the Court of Appeal. Shorey continued to maintain his innocence. Before the then Lord Chief Justice of England, Lord Taylor of Gosforth, Mr Justice Ognall, and Mr Justice Sedley, Peter Thornton QC raised three grounds of appeal. The first related to an instance when Shorey's partner Sandy Ratcliffe provided testimony. When cross-examined, she was being asked questions about Shorey's past. 
she incorrectly told the court that he had been convicted of multiple counts of grievous bodily harm. Something that she said turned her stomach. While Shuri had a criminal record, he had only been convicted on one count of GBH when he scolded a child's feet. Besides this, the information on the defendant's criminal background should not have been disclosed to the jury. Shuri's counsel argued the jury should have been discharged and the trial aborted. The second plank of Shuri's appeal related to the evidence provided by his cellmate, Mr. X. He was described as acting like a spy in the defence's camp. Thornton said Mr. X was not merely eavesdropping. He was actually promoting discussion on the subject of the murders. Quote, acting as an agent for the police. If officers were to do the same, they would have to follow strict guidelines set up under the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984. Finally, Peter Thornton QC stressed that the verdict was not safe, as the trial judge had not been clear in his summing up regarding scientific evidence presented by an expert witness. The witness had suggested that blood found on Shorey's shoes was blood from the body of someone who had died. There was no scientific test to prove this. The expert had made this assumption based on what they had seen using only the colour and consistency of the blood. In the appeal judge's verdict, they said that witness Sandy Ratcliffe had not deliberately referred to Shorey's previous conviction in order to abort the trial. The judge did what he could so the minds of jurors would not be distracted by irrelevant issues. The appeal verdict read, There are clearly good reasons for not wishing to abort a trial at that late stage. Not only reasons which may be regarded as in the interests of the Crown, but also in the interests of the defendant, who would have to undergo a second trial and would have to wait for an extensive period before it could take place. We take the view that the judge presiding at the time when such an incident occurs is in the best possible position to assess what effect the incident has had and is likely to have and to put it in the context of the whole of the conduct of the case over which he is presiding. In relation to whether or not the evidence from Mr. X should have been allowed, the appeal judges referred directly to the comments of the trial judge regarding the supposed admission by Shorey. It had been made after he had only known the witness for about a month and came out of the blue in the middle of a discussion about an entirely unconnected incident. The appeal judges agreed with Mr Justice Wright's reasoning that Shorey had made the admission when he was under absolutely no obligation to say anything, and had been warned not to do so. Shorey had no grounds to complain if his remarks were subsequently disclosed to the authorities. Addressing the final argument by Shorey's counsel about the blood found on his client's shoes, the appeal judges cited the testimony of another scientific expert, 
who contradicted the evidence that the blood came from a dead body. The judge had told the jury it was for them to consider what they made of the evidence presented to them. In the appeal judge's ruling, they wrote, We have considered each of these three grounds of appeal separately. We have also carefully reviewed the case on the basis of all the arguments taken in aggregate. In our judgment, there is here no basis for saying that an appeal could possibly succeed. So where are we now? Sandy Ratcliffe struggled with addiction on and off throughout her life. In April 2019, when Ratcliffe was 70 years old, she passed away in sheltered housing in northeast London. A year and a half before the murders, her acting work had all but dried up, and she struggled to find employment following the court case. She decided to give up acting and train to be a counsellor. She moved on and met someone else, although they passed away in 2013. In subsequent years, she suffered ill health and had several strokes. She was in and out of hospital frequently and was prescribed morphine and codeine to manage the pain. Sandy Ratcliffe died a day after returning from a visit to the hospital. Poplar Coroner's Court were told that she was near the end when she was admitted. Coroner Mary Hassel said, I don't think the morphine was used to end her life. She was using it as she had used drugs for many years. She died from a combination of two naturally occurring terminal conditions and an excess of morphine. It has been 30 years since Michael Shorey was sentenced for the murders of Elaine Forsyth and Patricia Morrison. The likelihood is that if he is still alive, he has been released. Shorey would now be in his mid-sixties, living life under the radar. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Helen Sims, and everyone who supports us on Patreon. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Flimsy stand slowing you down? Well, it's time to upgrade. Armadillo builds durable North American-made tablet stands and kiosks. We're so confident, we offer a lifetime warranty. So, elevate your business and visit armadillo.com. That's A-R-M-O-D-I-L-O.com and use code ACAST for 5% off. Armadillo. Built to last. Designed to impress.